Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Morning and welcome to this event on Brexit and immigration. Is taking back control helping the UK economy? I'm Gemma Tetlow and I'm Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government and I'll be chairing today's event. At the end of the Brexit transition period, the government made good on its promise to take back control of the UK's borders. Free movement of people ended and the government introduced a new points-based immigration system for EU nationals. But 11 months on, there are widespread labour shortages across the economy. These problems are not, of course, only the result of the new immigration system. Covid and long-term structural problems are also playing a role. But it seems a good time to take stock of the, how the government's new immigration system is working and ask whether it meets the needs of the UK economy. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by four panellists. We have Seema Farazi, partner in financial services, immigration and Brexit at EY, Madeleine Sumption, who's director of the Migration Observatory, my colleague Giles Wilkes, who's a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government, and Paul Wilson, who's policy director at the Federation of Small Businesses. Before we get started, a few brief housekeeping notes for you. Uh, please do start sending in your questions using the Q&A function in Teams. Um, if there's a question that's already been asked that's similar to the one you wanted to ask, please do up like the existing questions so we know it's popular. And if you're happy to add your name and location, please do, because it's always good to know who we're talking to. We'll be live tweeting this event from at IFG events, so please do follow and tweet along using the hashtags IFG Immigration and IFG Brexit. This event is on the record and the video and sound recording will be available on our website within 24 hours if you'd like to watch it back. Then, Madeline, let me come to you first. How do you think the new immigration system is working and what impact does the government's preference for high-skilled labour over low-skilled labour in the new points-based system working for the UK economy? So, <clears throat> obviously it's quite early days um, and these are also pretty strange times to be trying to evaluate a new system because of, of the pandemic. Um, the early data that we have um, uh, on the numbers of people using the system do suggest that um, EU migration has been pretty low. Um, we have data so far for the first half of the year and we're looking really only a few thousand people, um, EU citizens coming in on um, on work visas if you take out the, this group called Frontier Workers who aren't actually living in the UK. Um, so that, you know, that's consistent with the possibility that there's been, a, you know, that the system will have dramatically reduced EU migration. But obviously, you know, we also had the pandemic going on. It's possible that employers need a little bit of time to adjust to the new system. So I wouldn't necessarily extrapolate from this and say, you know, that's this is what EU migration is going to be like for, forever. Um, in terms of the impacts, I mean, I, I, in the fullness of time, there will be you know, hopefully statistical analyses will become possible to actually really try and um, measure what uh, what the impacts have, have been. In the meantime, a lot of the information we have is sort of anecdotal or qualitative. Um, you mentioned shortages, um, uh, obviously, and uh, clearly the end of free movement is likely to have exacerbated the shortages. It's quite, it's just really difficult to disentangle the, the different factors because in all of, if you look at different occupations, where there have been complaints about shortages, there's usually several things going on. Um, so if you take the HGV drivers, for example, which was obviously the big high profile one over the summer, um, you had the you know the, the issues with people, uh, fewer people being able to take tests and become HGV drivers. Um, you had the kind of long standing difficulties that the industry has had attracting UK workers in. And obviously you've got to remember UK workers are the majority of the, of the HGV driving workforce. Um, 
and and then of course you had the end of free movement, which um, sort of exacerbated those um, those those other problems. The other thing I would just say is that we don't know at this stage. It's it's not clear how long some of these problems are going to last. Um, some of them may just be sort of blips um, that that you know it's related to the very sudden end of free movement plus the fact that um, you know we've got an unusual labour market and employers haven't yet adjusted. Um, but then in some um, in some occupations it may become more of a longer term pattern and I think to to some extent it depends on the nature of the occupations and how easy it will be for employers to adjust by doing things like um, like automation or indeed for the economy to adjust um, with you know certain sectors um, shrinking. Overall, the research on immigration has tended to suggest that the impacts are smaller than people intuitively um, think, and you would expect that in principle to be the case for the end of free movement as well. But um, yeah, there's still uh, still a lot of evaluation, I think, to be done before there's a proper answer to that question. Thank you. Giles, that's, that's a good kind of link into to question to you. The government was initially reluctant to use the immigration system to overcome the labour shortages. Do you think it was right to be hesitant and will the new short term visas that have now been announced help or will they actually delay the adjustments of the sort that Madeleine was talking about that are needed in the longer term? Well, wow, great question. Well, the government's first reaction was it seemed to improvise a new economic model to justify the refusal to lighten things, which was based on the idea that uh, too high a labour supply effectively, particularly in the low the low skill area, will um, cause the UK economy to go to a sort of a less lucrative place. So in other words, rather than investing and training, we will simply ship people in and out over the borders. And so although this is a short term inconvenience for people, it's um, it's actually long term going to shake up the UK economy and give us the right incentives to do the things that we need to do to get back on a rising productivity trend. Now, I'll do my best to defend this because I must admit that for a long time, the explosion in labour supply that seemed to happen after the financial crisis did indeed seem to be having some kind of a, an effect on causing low wages, that long, um, slow growth in productivity period. And I mean, if you read really great influential books written through that period, like The Wealth of Humans written by Ryan Avent, this idea that we, we're seeing ways of endlessly increasing human labor. And as a result, nobody's ever sort of sharing the prosperity apart from the very lucky people who get access to really valuable intellectual capital, like the workers at the big tech companies and so forth. So maybe if we restricted um, immigration, restricted labour supply, we'll start seeing much more growth and much more productivity growth and higher wages and more prosperity all around. So um, does it look like it worked and um, have they messed it up? It's difficult because I mean any instinctive liberal would say it's very difficult for the centre to be um, sufficiently versatile and identify where the shortages are and react quickly enough and understand where they're going to be. Leave it to the market. So just let market forces do this correctly. Um, as far as I can see, the wage rises that we are seeing, which is the supposed uh, silver lining behind all these shortages, they're going to be highly restricted to who the, who the beneficiaries are. Most of us are, in fact, consumers and investors. And for people wearing those hats, it's unequivocally a bad thing. So right now, I would say the jury's definitely out on the idea that having shortages in any part of the economy is necessarily a good thing. Seema, you advise firms who are using the immigration system. How are your clients finding it? And how do you think the Home Office is administering this new system? Uh, thank you and good morning, everyone. 
Um, there was obviously a very significant change that took place in uh, January last year, and a lot of it is actually fundamentally positive. So before you look at the impact of Brexit, if you look at the changes in the immigration system itself, the so removal of resident labour market testing, the lowering of the skills level to level three to qualify for a sponsored visa, the reduction of salary levels, flexibility for individuals to switch between immigration categories, the introduction of the graduate route, um, much more flexibility for employers around the cooling off period, something that's been quite challenging for high volume users of the, of the system historically. Um, and expedited processing, for example, for those that are new to the system and are looking to get sponsor licenses quickly as quickly as possible. That, that's all been fundamentally positive. Um, when you add the, uh, the end of free movement, what is the additional challenge that that puts on business? Well, it's largely cost um, because the system itself is working quite effectively and efficiently. And given the pressure that we expected the system to come under, it has fared very well. Applications are being processed in good time uh, overall. Um, the system is quite clear and what the government has shown is that it is willing to course correct, um, it is willing to listen. And one of the most positive things that we've seen, I think, in immigration that, that we haven't always historically seen is uh, stakeholder engagement across the board, um, listening to businesses, listening to industry about what are the particular pressure points and actually taking those comments on board and changing. Um, I think there are two there are two key pressure points that we're that we're going to see and I, I completely agree with Madeline that it's far too early to to gauge the full impact. And one of the reasons for that is of course the pandemic because the pandemic has muted volumes and particularly EU UK volumes and that's where we're going to start to see those costs build up. So I think the two the two outstanding uh, things that will remain to be seen is what is the pressure on SMEs, um, how um, easily are they able to engage with the system? And that's going to uh, look, that's going to depend on things like communications, knowledge, cost, what's the administrative burden um, that they're put under. For high volume users of the system, so big business, uh, the key thing is going to be cost, the increased cost. Um, and maybe later in the discussion, we'll talk about what are some of the uh, initiatives that are being put in place to manage, manage that as we move into 2022. Thank you. Thank you. Paul, that's a perfect um, link to you. H how are your members in the small business community finding the new immigration system? And, and perhaps also, what do they think about these kind of short term visa options? Does that work for them? Good morning. Um, so things are really tough from an employment perspective for small businesses at the moment. And um, obviously we're in a period of transition now. Change is always tough to a degree. That's not a reason not to do it, but it's about how you manage the change, I suppose. So I guess just taking a step back, you know, staff shortages and appropriately skilled staff shortages are as big a barrier for small businesses now as they've been for the last six years since we've been asking them about it on a quarterly basis. 38% of small businesses say that access to appropriately skilled staff is a key barrier to growth. And they're also facing a range of cost pressures right across the board, including employment costs. And, you know, looking to next year, unfortunately, we're going to see a national insurance contribution increase, which is going to make employment more expensive and more difficult. So things are tough at the moment. And I think, obviously, there are a range of solutions to that skills. An investment in skills is crucial and it's important that small businesses can engage with key skills policies like apprenticeships and also the immigration system is a key part of that. I would say most small businesses aren't turning to the immigration system at the moment for a couple of reasons. One is that it is just too expensive 
uncomplicated for them at, at the moment. You know, small businesses don't tend to have HR departments and the costs of bringing someone in on a skilled worker visa, which we estimate to be about three grand, are unaffordable for about half of small businesses, according to our research. And the other thing to say is, of course, that a lot of jobs won't be eligible. You know, when we surveyed our members um, a couple of years ago on this, 41% of jobs in small businesses were deemed low skilled. Now, that's not a term I like because these jobs are hard. I couldn't do them. But that does mean that they don't necessarily qualify for the current skilled work route, either because they're not on the, on the list or indeed because the salary level is not high enough, even if they are on the list. So there are issues there. Madeline, um, I think you've done work looking at other countries' immigration systems as well. What is there anything the UK can learn from the approaches other countries have taken about what the what impact this new approach might have, or different approaches to managing your immigration system? Yeah, um, so there's a, a huge amount of diversity around the world, um, and obviously some countries have very liberal um, uh, immigration systems like Sweden, for example, where basically pretty much anyone could be sponsored and the costs are very low. Um, you have countries like Australia that are uh, much more restrictive and whether it's particularly in the um, you know, lower paid jobs don't tend to offer many options at all. It's interesting, it's actually difficult to, to back out any difference, you know, the macro level, any differences in this country's economic performance, although, you know, basically because there's just so much other stuff um, going on. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say there's a single country that's a shining example of, of doing things well. One thing I do think that the UK can learn from other countries that, that's really clear is just, um, and I, I don't want to be one of these dreadful researchers who comes and says it's all about having more data, um, but um, but that you look at some other countries and the data is just so much better. I mean, the UK has pretty good data in terms of who's coming in. Um, but we don't have the kinds of data that would really be necessary to evaluate immigration routes. So saying, OK, this guy came in in this particular route. Um, you know, how did he do five years later? Um, how did he do 10 years later? That kind of data. And if you look at places like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, a lot of them are actually able to evaluate their programs really well. And there is a risk, I think, in the, things are improving in terms of data in the UK, but there's a risk that five years from now, we'll look back and actually we won't be quite sure what the impact was because we won't have had the data to, to really evaluate it. Can I just add? Yeah, yeah I was just going to add something to that. So, I mean, when you look at, because we often heat map and, and look at these um, systems comparatively, and there are a couple of things that you're benchmarking when you're doing that. So you're looking at accessibility, transparency, uh, what are the lead times to get somebody into place? What, how easy is the process? Um, what is the cost? Is there a resident labour market test involved, etc.? And the UK actually does when you heat map it like for like, the UK does very well on all of that except cost. Cost is the absolutely critical component here. Um, and, you know, Paul alluded to the, the very high cost in the skilled worker system. Um, they are far above what we see in other jurisdictions. And that, that to me, remains the key pressure point. One of the other things, um, Madeline, you, you mentioned data as well. Uh, this kind of feeds into a lot of the narrative around immigration um, and actually being an attractive place for international talent is really critical. Um, and the contribution that's made uh, through, we don't have that data where you can easily see that narrative from kind of start to end, what that contribution has been and what the success story looks like. But what you do have is data around the contribution of migrants to the National Health Service through the Immigration Health Surcharge contribution to the domestic skills agenda through the immigration skills charge and um, the tax contribution that's all very well documented and one of the things that i think the uk 
probably does need to do better is being more positive about its immigration narrative. And we're starting to see that shift. Um, but we do need, I, th I think there needs to be a lot of focus on that because ultimately, if you're trying to attract uh, key talent into the UK, the UK has to be seen to be attractive to that talent. Um, it's not just about having the right immigration categories, but people have to want to come into the UK and contribute in that way. And Seema and Paul, when you're interacting with government on issues about your clients, um, members wanting to employ people from abroad, do you get a positive response from within government at the moment? Is there is there that positive attitude to bringing in people from overseas, particularly where they have something to contribute? Or is there is there a bit of a negative attitude to having immigrants at all? I mean, from my perspective, I haven't come across a negative attitude to having immigrants at all, you know, and I do think the Home Office has done a lot of good engagement, a lot of good listening over the last year or two in particular. Um, so that, you know, that said, I think the, the way we think about what counts as skilled is maybe a little bit old fashioned. Still, I think there is a preference for, you know, your classic higher education and less weighting put on really important technical skills. And I think that's one of one of the issues that we see, you know, the fact that your, your job happens to require something at level three equivalent, not level two equivalent. But, you know, if, if in all honesty, we have a shortage of people with a really relevant skill, at a lower level, we need that job to be done, we need that job to be done here, then I think we need to think more flexibly about what counts as skilled. And that's a broader issue that I think, uh, you know, the government has made commendable efforts to address within the technical education system. And I think that's why the government has quite rightly made some tweaks and introduced some short term visas more recently to ensure that the immigration system is suitably flexible. But for me, it comes back to that. Uh, you know, distinction between what we think of as skilled and whether we're thinking of it in quite the right way. I agree, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, there's a lot that you, you hear anecdotally, but if, if you look at the evidence, um, there there is this continued stakeholder engagement and that stakeholder engagement is actually it involves a lot of listening and change and, and course correction. Um, if you look at the innovation that was um, that we saw during the pandemic from the Home Office in particular to meet very, very practical difficulties that businesses were having because they couldn't get people in offices to do right to work checks because they couldn't process visas and they needed people to start once their certificate of sponsorship was issued. The UK really led internationally in that space on, on pandemic, um, I would say. And we've, we've seen that a lot of that innovation has actually pivoted into the new system. So they haven't kind of parked that, but they've actually taken a lot of that on board, virtual right to work checking being a kind of key example. So I think there's there's a lot of positive, there's a lot of evidence that you can point to. And I think fundamentally, uh, what, what the government could have done is say that we're dealing with a massive, uh, a huge change in our immigration system. We're not going to be considering other things until we've got this kind of up and running and we're six to 12 months in. They haven't done that. They have continued to engage. We're seeing the unsponsored route being uh, kicked off in the spring of next year, the scale up routes, um, all of the work that's been done around policy and the sponsorship roadmap so to make it easier for small um, businesses to kind of get on that uh, sponsorship ladder and, and bring talent into the UK. So the, I think the direction of travel is positive. There are always improvements that can be made, but I think the critical thing is that continued stakeholder engagement and actually listening and changing a uh, path where, where uh, it's necessary. Adeline. Uh, I just wonder if I could come in on that issue of 
of skill? Because I think this is really interesting. Um, there's a lot of debate about this. I think in some ways it's unfortunate the issue is really just about the word skill, um, because when people get divided into skilled and unskilled, then of course you can look at the so-called unskilled skilled jobs and see that actually a lot of them are very difficult and there are all sorts of skills that they that they do involve. Um, uh, the government approach to this, which is mostly driven um, by classification the Office of National Statistics runs, is actually reasonably coherent in that it is looking at the duration of training that is required to do a certain job. So the basic principle is, you know, if a job doesn't require much training, then it should be easier for people um, who don't have any background in that job to move into it. Whereas if you require, you know, eight years of, of training, whether it's sort of technical training or, or academic training, um, you're not going to be able to just slot someone new into that job very easily. Um, so I think in some ways the issue is not so much the sort of whether we need a better definition of skill, um, but I think probably it, it's about the, the conversation is really about where uh, you know, maybe use a different word from skill so people don't um, get worried about that. And then the conversation is really, OK, well, in what cases does the gov? is there a case for saying even though these people don't meet the class, you know, the skill classification, is there still social value um, of some kind in, in having people do these jobs, whether it's, you know, social care, construction, you know, there'll be a different case that people will want to make in every industry. But that, I think, is probably the issue um, rather than necessarily trying. I think it would be challenging to sort of redefine ourselves out of this um the this the skill debate um you know by just using a, a better definition i think it's more a fundamental question about you know trying to agree as a country you know who should be eligible for the immigration system and who shouldn't and, and how is the the skills definition interacting with the salary thresholds that are also in the system yeah, it's just one on top of the other, really. Um, so uh, and generally, obviously, there's a correlation between the skill classification and, and the salary. So if you're a pilot, you're not going to have any trouble meeting the 25,600 um, threshold. There's also an occupation specific one. But um, but generally, so the, the jobs that are classified as high skills tend to get higher earnings. Um, you do you get some jobs where the salary threshold is really important. Um, because it's this flat rate at 25,600 unless you're on the shortage list. Um, if you're something like a lab technician um, where wages are, are really low, um, you basically the occupation would need to be on the shortage list and have a lower salary threshold, even though it's classified as a skilled job. Um, basically, the, the, the wages are not um, are much lower than your average skilled jobs. So you get these odd um, cases, lab technicians is one. Now, HGV drivers actually is another because it's not classified as a high skilled job because it doesn't take that long to become an HGV driver. Um, but they actually, if you, when you look at the wages, they're earning a, a huge amount more than most people in jobs that require that level of training for various reasons, including the hours they work and the fact that it's, it's quite a difficult job. So yes, they sort of interact in interesting ways. And Giles, um, Madeline's already talked about how difficult it is to really untangle what's going on with the new immigration system, given everything else that's going on with the pandemic. But do you think there's any evidence so far that this is affecting how the UK labour market is working or how employers are operating? Well, I will use the same excuse as others in that it's an incredibly difficult time with the furlough system just um, ending and um, a lot of other movements have taken place at the same time as the immigration change, in particular a large movement of older people out of the workforce, um, as well as our own particular Brexit related issues. So I would say that there has been, there have been surveys and I think there's been some really good work from the Resolution Foundation and the Centre for Economic Performance finding that there is more 
um, um, enthusiasm for investment and training in some places to make up for it. I've noticed anecdotally that you also see far more young people in those sort of retail jobs. I mean, I, I was in a cafe over the weekend and there was just a constant sort of a row of 15 year olds seemingly being trained into how to be a barista and use the um, till. What, what, what I struggle with at a higher level is what is the underlying theory behind the idea that if you're below a certain level, and I, I totally agree with the caveats about whether that makes sense to define skill purely by salary, um, below a certain level, we shouldn't be having people from overseas, is the implication that either we don't need those activities or we should be doing them all ourselves. And I thought the idea behind the economic model was we want to move towards higher skilled work. So is the idea, if, if work is really lowly paid, that should be for the Brits, because that doesn't seem to make much sense to go along with the overall idea. You'd have thought the overall idea is we want to have the space and investment to get better at high skilled things ourselves and use the trading system in a sense to fill in all of the gaps. But so I don't I don't know whether any of the other panelists have a have a, a neat solution to that paradox. Um, I'm going to suggest one. Um, so the um, the youth mobility scheme uh, is is a really critical uh, serves a really critical purpose in the immigration system. And uh, back in, uh, I think it was the end of 2018, when one, one of the first white papers came out on the future immigration system post-Brexit, um, it was suggested that there would be a UK-EU reciprocal youth mobility scheme. And there was a sense that that would be able to support some of these gaps through, through transient labour whilst the domestic skills were being, were being built up. And that hasn't um, that hasn't happened in, in the way that was expected for a multitude of reasons, um, although I know there is continued work to, to get to that end. And we know that the UK has negotiated youth mobility schemes with other countries in the meantime, and it's enhanced its youth mobility scheme with Australia. Um, but that's a really good way to get kind of uh, temporary labour into the UK economy whilst the UK is bolstering to the domestic skills um, pipeline as well. Um, and that's something that we would, um, that we know that businesses are very uh, warm to, that idea, firstly, because it's reciprocal. So UK nationals are similarly benefiting from being able to go overseas um, and bring those skills back to the UK. So that's something which is, I would say has kind of fallen off uh, the, the radar as a priority for business, but actually it serves, it, it would serve um, multi, multiple purposes here when we're talking about um, shortages. I think the other thing just to point out is that we were, um, you know, we've all been kind of living the experience if we drive cars that, that require fuel about the challenges of, uh, the, challenges of, uh, of, of the market. But none of this is really surprising because if you look at research, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at research that came out in early 2019, and they, uh, there was research in the Institute of Public Policy and Research where they looked at what are the sectors that were going to be most impacted by this change. And you could see transport and storage right at the top, followed by manufacturing, retail, leisure, etc., and all the way down to financial services and professional services. And so again, kind of getting ahead of these challenges, we have an opportunity to now go back to those lists. And what are the next areas that we could be hitting problems with? What's the investment that's needed in the domestic skills agenda? And how can we, at the same time, um, support uh, the necessary immigration into the UK to, to make sure that we're not facing similar problems in different sectors? Uh, Paul, I was wondering, do you, would your small business members find something like an expanded youth mobility scheme valuable? How would that help? 
hundred percent. Yeah. Now we looked at uh, particularly the tourism and hospitality sectors in the summer. We did a report, a menu for recovery, and of course, you know, though those are sectors where the new skilled work route just just does just doesn't work. Youth mobility schemes could be a really useful and quite pragmatic way of actually ensuring that there is uh, enough workers in those sectors who, let's not forget, have been hit incredibly hard by the pandemic for a host of reasons. A, the fact that they literally couldn't open for quite a while, but B, also, you know, the conditions that workers often have to be in at perhaps greater risk of exposure to COVID than in some other sectors and people have reappraised. So at the same time as that EU labour has has been cut off to a degree, you know, a lot of people who work in hospitality are thinking, well, I've, I've been on furlough, I've been doing a second job, maybe I quite like that second job, maybe I need to do something else. And it, what it's meant is for the hospitality sector, for example, that they've had to be really creative with how they've gone about opening up. Uh, and maybe looked at opening up for shorter hours or fewer days than they would ideally like to do, maybe paying people more. And of course, as, as Giles alluded to upfront, all of that then feeds through into customer choice and, and you know, cost. Madeline. Um, yeah, I just wanted to come back to this issue that Giles raised um, about the, um, you know, how we, what we, I guess what we want the composition of the economy to be like in some ways. So if you reduce the supply of um, of EU workers, there are obviously various different adjustments. So the adjustment that people always talk about is, you know, getting Brits into the jobs and, and paying them more. Um, but of course, there are different adjustments that we can also expect. But the most obvious one is just that there will be fewer of these types of jobs, um, either because of automation where that's possible or, um, you know, just the sector's becoming smaller. You know, we had a big expansion, for example, in um, uh, labour intensive um, horticultural production since 2004. Um, you know, some of that one would expect might go into reverse. Um, in the in the short run, that can be disruptive. In the long run, I think the debate that's going on now among um, economists in this field, I think, is basically, is that a good thing or not? Um, now, Giles's argument effectively is, well, we're going to, you, Giles, you tell me if I'm wrong, characterising your argument, but effectively, you know, if if the Brits are better off, if if workers come in and they do these jobs and uh, Brits are then kind of working more in maybe supervisory roles or the more productive work, then that's a good outcome for everyone. Um, I think the sort of counter argument is that migrants, if migrants are doing low wage work, they obviously, once they, it's not just trade in the sense that they become part of society too. So if you're looking at, you know, if you think, what is the definition of a high wage high productivity economy, not to um, you know, misuse a, a phrase that's been bandied around a lot. I think that there's a conceptual question which I don't have an answer to, which is, are migrants part of that or not? Because you can have a vision which, if you took, took, took it to the extreme, leads you to sort of the UAE, where basically um, you have um, you know, a very large number of low productivity jobs being done by migrant workers and maybe the more productive uh, jobs being done by, um, by the locals. Or you could say, actually, no, migrants are part of that. And therefore, even if it makes the migrants better off to come here and do those jobs, um, it still is reducing the average across the across the economy. The youth mobility scheme is a sort of interesting way of hedging these positions, right? Because you say, OK, well, we'll have um, people come, but we're not going to make them part of society um, because they'll they'll have to leave after two years. And that has pros and cons as well, which, you know, some people like and some people don't. But I think there isn't a, an obvious uh, sort of philosophical answer to that to that question, what's the right outcome there? And I mean, you pointed there to the UAE as an example of a society where they use a lot of migrant labour for low skilled, sort of 
section that off is which is there a country you would point to as kind of the opposite model that they've kind of gone for automation and high skilled jobs for everyone um, avoiding low pay I mean, I guess the examples that are always used, so Japan um, often um, comes up for better or worse. Australia um, is interesting because they, I mean, I think there are no countries where they literally just don't have, well, no sort of comparable countries um, where they just have exceptionally low levels of migration to low-wage jobs, partly because you always end up with um, people coming in through um, family routes or um, or as refugees, and many of those people will join uh, the low wage workforce. Um, but I would yeah, I would say Australia is probably the most comparable country I can think of to the UK, where they have um, a, a work visa system that's pretty restrictive on on the low end. Giles, did you want to come back on that? I I think Madeline has very fairly characterised my view there. I mean. I struggle as a as an instinctive liberal to see a big negative externality to having other people in the workforce and society as well, um, which is maybe my sort of slight metropolitan bubble. But I also think, I mean, as we've seen, for example, I believe with turkey farming, as a result of inadequate labour supply, uh, we're buying our turkeys being reared overseas. So all we've done is like, like shift some activity. Maybe even the very same workers are still managing the turkey production thing, but they've just moved away and we're using our capital and land and skills at a different level less. And we've just shifted it slightly and then we buy them in instead. So I, I don't see what's being gained there unless, and it's a perfectly valid view to have, you see a really big negative externality from having all of these people knocking around on our shores as opposed to a few dozen or or a hundred miles away which just feels to me like quite an old-fashioned view i'm not i'm certainly not implying that that's yours madeline but it's just i i you would have to 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 stack it against the clear economic cost of losing some of that activity you'd have to have a pretty significant sense that you're also got a big negative externality from having that did you want to come back in madeline um, yes, no, I, I think um, you're absolutely right. And I think in some way people's views, um, you know, I'm very non-political and stuff, but I think people's views do sometimes just come down to effectively whether they like migration or not. Um, and so if you look at this kind of basic observation that the impacts of migration tend to be a lot smaller than people expect, some people um, look at that and say, great, well, there's no problem. We can have migration and, you know, there are some benefits here and there and uh, and it, it doesn't have a lot of negatives. Other people look at that and say, fine, mm -hmm. well, the costs of restricting migration actually are pretty low. So we can have lower migration and um, and it's, it's not going to ruin our economy. And I, I think that actually is ends up being a sort of non-economic view that people come, you know, people come Come down one way or the other, depending on this, you know, more subjective um, social views about whether immigration is a good thing or not. Can I just okay, add some, um, oh, yes, uh, just to add one point there because uh, Madeline raised. Uh, you mentioned refugees as well. So obviously, we we have a number of. Um, you know, there is there is a wide pool of individuals in the UK um, who do not have effective routes into employment. Now, some of that is, you know, domestic individuals who don't have who don't have the right skill set or they don't have the right training. But we also have um, a large population of refugees in the UK. We've got individuals who are coming into the UK under the Afghanistan programs at the moment. Um, and uh, there isn't really a very uh, clear pathway into economic integration for these individuals and, and many of these people have uh, are very qualified in some of the fields where we need uh, support, whether that's 
HCV drivers, whether it's law, whether it's medicine, whether it's social care. Um, and one of the things that I think we could do better in the immigration system is really supporting that economic, in the integration into employment into the UK and into the socioeconomic structure of the UK. I think that's an area where there's a bit of a gap and there is a talent pool that is here now. And we should be doing better to, 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 use, to, to, you know, to make the most of that and to give opportunities to individuals who can actually contribute right now and are in the UK at the moment. Thank you, Seema. And that's actually quite a nice link to the first question I was going to take from the audience. Um, Jill has asked, given that immigration is now a key economic variable, is it still right for the Home Office to be in charge of immigration for work? Um, Madeline, do you, can I put that one to you first? I think, uh, I mean, it's a difficult question. Actually, IFG has written some of the best things on this topic, I think, about, you know, whether um, how much it actually well firstly whether sort of moving things around is worth it given the disruption that it um that, that it causes um I, I think at the end of the day I mean, there are obviously cultural differences between departments and i think while in principle you shouldn't get a different outcome um uh, in a sort of very theoretical model, you shouldn't necessarily get totally different policy if you put it in another department. I'm sure that you would in practice and that it would be more liberal if it wasn't in the Home Office. Um, so I think then, you know, the debate becomes um, just about what, you know, people then will want it in the department that will give them the answer that they want. Um, and so that it's sort of, you know, the fight about what policy should be, you know, gets elevated to a fight about institutions as the political science literature has told us, has predicted will happen. Cool. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I actually used to be a civil servant myself, so I've seen a fair number of machinery of government changes that I was I was party to. I think, you know, what we need to move towards is a system whereby departments have shared success measures. So for me, it, it, it sh really shouldn't matter that Home Office is the lead department, provided that they're collaborating really, really closely with Bayes and with the Treasury on what the economy needs within this space. And I think, you know, over the last few years, government has done a lot to try and create clarity over what departments are trying to achieve and try and create those, you know, shared success measures. And funnily enough, if you were to move it from one department to another, what generally ends up happening is all these people who are working on it in that one department move across to the other department. So in practical terms, it can be a lot of upheaval for not a lot of benefit. So, so for me, it's about the, you know, those clear success measures, home office, thinking about what business needs as well as all the other requirements and and then being publicly accountable there. Charles. Um, I, I will surprisingly agree that it does need to stay with the Home Office because there's too many security advantages. But what Paul, the point Paul made there about needing to work together, if I can just back up with an anecdote that under the coalition, there is a proposal for something called the security bond, where money is put down by an immigrant looking to come here that's taken away if some sort of conditions are, are broken. And it was so rare for the different sides of the Whitehall immigration debate to meet that the conception of what this thing actually meant was not at all shared until we finally had a catastrophic meeting in the cabinet office, whereas, whereas it emerged that the Home Office thought, great, this is a new hurdle that will make it even more difficult to come to the country. We're going to say not only do you have to do all these other things, now you've got to also post a bond. Whereas Biz was saying, this is a great thing. Instead of having all of this nonsense, why don't we just say people have to post a bond and then uh, and so the totally different conception of the whole thing, and it went up in flames because the two just saw no advantage in talking to one another. 
Sima. Yes, I think um, I agree with everything that, that's been said. And I think you have to spit out policy from operations. It's, it's very difficult to envisage the operation of the system sitting anywhere other than with the Home Office. Um, and we know that one of the key things that, that the Home Office are doing at the moment is looking at their border strategy, border and security strategy to 2025, creating virtual borders, etc. Um, and there's a lot of work in place to improve also the immigration processes and make everything online. Um, I think the policy point is a, is a very important one, and I, I agree with what Paul said, and we have actually seen some of that already. So if you look at the innovation strategy where they're talking about immigration, that's coming out of this. If you look at the the reference, the strong references to immigration and having po you know positive policies in place coming out of the the budget, the spring budget and the autumn budget, um, and of course we know that there are the the office for talent, which is um, it, it's shifting mode at the moment, but that that has also been part of number ten uh, and now the the cabinet office to focus on driving attractiveness of the UK to talent. So I think from from a policy perspective, um, there needs to be a multi stakeholder approach. Uh, from an operations perspective, um, I, I think I, I can't see that moving away from the Home Office anytime soon. The next question has come from Lewis Keller of the CBI, who says that since Brexit, the ending of mutual recognition of professional qualifications has added complexities to companies, especially in professional services. Is that something that any of you have come across as an issue? And should the government do more to strike bilateral agreements with EU members around this? Seema, perhaps I can come to you first. Well, yes, I think it's probably the, the short answer. And it, it's one of many um, problems that, that kind of are not, not purely immigration, but sit, sit outside of the, the immigration system and create additional hurdles. Um, so certainly in some sectors, this is more challenging than others, but that there is more work that, that needs to be done. And um, if we look at some of the mobility agreements, for example, with Switzerland, we know that there is specific provision in some of those agreements for the mutual recognition of qualifications. So yes, I would agree that, that more needs to be done. Paul, is that something that your members are also encountering? Um, it's it's not something that I've talked about a lot at FSB, but it will it will be a problem. And I mean, it's something I know a little bit about from from other roles that I've done. Um, and and obviously, it is something that was lost when we moved out of the EU. You know, there was quite a good single market, particularly looking at professional services. And I think mutual recognition of professional qualifications was part of the answer there. And obviously, we're also talking about you know uh, workers from. UK flying in and flying out of, say, EU countries, that's an area that became a lot more uncertain as a result of it. So I think it is something because trading services is always a bit more complicated than trading goods and perhaps doesn't always get the amount of attention that it needs and deserves. And I think it is something that we'll need to keep looking at under the new arrangements. I think it's a really good point. Madeline, I'll come to you next. Perhaps I can tack on another question that's coming on quite similar lines, which is, on this point of further bilateral relationships between arrangements between the UK and single EU countries, is there more that the UK government could be doing uh, on those? Over to you, Madeline. Yeah, on the recognition of qualifications, just the one thing I thought I would add is that it's actually really difficult to get these agreements. Um, the re we had it in the EU, partly because the EU took such a brutal approach um, to sort of ramming it through. And so, and, basically, and it was very unpopular at points um, with the different regulators because they the EU effectively said, you know, if you're on this list, you are not allowed to impose any more requirements on this person from, you know, Germany or what have you, regardless of whether you think they're qualified to do the job. 
um, and um, and you know actually for the most part it, it worked very smoothly, um, but it but it wasn't always popular. When you then outside of that framework, um, when you try and then voluntarily conclude these agreements, uh, maybe you know with like-minded countries, United States, Australia, what have you. Um, it is. It just is a morass of difficult negotiations because you've got all of these different bodies. You've got the sort of a different for every occupation. Um, you've got a different professional body that's governed in different ways that the government doesn't necessarily control. Um, so it, it's actually you know the, there's a long history of government saying brilliant. Let's have an agreement on recognition of professional qualifications and then. Um, basically, it all fizzling out because it was just too hard to do it, and, and no one could to, could agree. On the other point about um, bilateral relationships, I mean, the big thing here, I think, at the moment um, is is the youth mobility scheme. That's probably you know, there are lots of things, bits and pieces of immigration that tend to come into bilateral agreements or, or free trade agreements. They often tend to be um, relatively narrow, kind of looking at you know business travel arrangements, for example, intercompany transfers. Um, probably the one that substantively might have the most impact on the overall immigration landscape in the UK, um, therefore, would be youth mobility. The government has said that it wants youth mobility schemes with the EU countries, um, but um, yeah, it's not clear. There's been no updates as to whether any of those negotiations are, are progressing, as far as I'm aware. Next question has come from Hartley Miller, who asks, apart from political intransigence, are there any reasons for not introducing a Canada style regional immigration system, for example, for Scotland or Wales separately? No one likes to take that one. <laughs> Madeline, perhaps I can put it to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I probably should. I wrote a paper on this a few years ago um, and I think um, Basically, there are pros and cons um, to this system. If you look at it from a purely national level and say, OK, I'm sitting here in Westminster, what system makes sense for the whole UK? The arguments for um, a regional system are actually not that strong because the regions per se are not so different from each other if you look at the general economic indicators. So if you wanted to sort of look at some data and say, OK, well, what do these different parts of the UK need? You'd actually struggle to to come up with a, a coherent system that's better than just having one simple system across the board that employers, especially employers who have offices in more than one location, they don't want to mess around with different requirements, you know, when their person travels from Scotland to London or, or what have you. However, if you're that's only that's the perspective from Westminster and probably the perspective from the sort of, um, you know, large employers with multiple locations. Um, if you're in Scotland, you may see it quite differently um, because um, Basically, the, the concern there is like, OK, well, we want a different immigration policy from what they want in Westminster. And actually, a lot of this is sort of a, you know, political choices, not necessarily a kind of technocratic economic decision about whether wages are sort of 2% lower in Scotland than they are in the rest of, of the UK or what have you. Um, and so actually, I think in some ways it ends up being not so much a, an economic question about how do you optimise immigration for the whole of the UK, because I actually think regional systems it's difficult to do that with a regional system. I think it's more a matter of principle about where it is appropriate, what level it is appropriate for decisions to be taken about this and whether you think, you know, devolved administrations or cities um, or, or regions um, should have a say over what kind of immigration policies they have. Does anyone else want to come in on that question? No. Okay. Um, the next question is specifically on agriculture. Does anyone, um, feel sufficiently expert on the agricultural sector to take a question or shall I move on to the next one? <laughs> yeah, 
Okay, in that case, apologies to Philip Harknett, but we may have to park your question on how to make agricultural roles more attractive to British labourers. Um, uh, so next question um, from an anonymous questioner is, do you think the government will need to impose some sort of training incentive offer for those sectors with shortages? Um, do we need to do more apart from limiting the supply of workers to incentivise shortage sectors to do the training that's needed? Paul, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think training incentives are important. It's not you can't just limit the amount of immigration and assume the training will take place. And actually, there's something around incentivizing training in certain sectors. I think, you know, from a Federation of Small Businesses perspective, we were quite pleased to see the commitments, things like skills boot camps that the government announced at the recent spending review and budget. And also, I think there's a point around incentivising smaller employers to be able to engage with key skills policies. So, you know, apprenticeships, for example, it's been the kind of flagship vocational training route for many years, but it is still very difficult for smaller employers to engage with that, to be attractive to, to a training provider, to have that sort of critical mass of enough learners to get, get what they need. And I think some of the incentives that the Chancellor announced, I think intended as sort of COVID uh, specific incentives to take on an apprentice or take on a T-level placement, the FSB think they need to be prolonged into the future because actually they're really valuable at encouraging smaller employers who want to be able to engage but can't always afford to be able to do so to be able to take on an apprentice or an additional apprentice or a T-level uh, placement student. And I think if you can carry on with some targeted incentives, it could make a real difference to making sure that all employers of all sizes can really benefit from the skill system. Giles, did you have a comment on that? Well, I guess my only concern, I mean, I'm, I'm putting on the hat of, I imagine, a sceptical Treasury Special Advisor is, I imagine there's been hundreds of training schemes over the years, and we're still in this position where there's been quite a low incentive to, or there seems to be low take up of training amongst the corporate world for the last 10, 15 years. And the apprentice, as, as Paul says, the apprenticeship level was meant to be the solution to that. And now we're also trying the idea of labour shortages too. Um, so sort of both the sort of demand side and the supply side of all sort of working together. I could see them wondering what's different now and what's different with this new thing. Is it simply, you know, one extra bump to the um, budget or is there um, some new idea behind this? Because part of the problem is it's a classic area for public support training because it's not only the employer who benefits. That employee goes away and becomes useful to the whole economy. So it's a classic spillover. But um, there's so many other things being tried. I'm just wondering what's what would make an extra one now different and what will ensure that it doesn't get cut or messed around with over the years ahead. So that's just a very sort of world weary Whitehall kind of answer. Um, the next question has come from Philip Mead, who asks whether government policy should be more supportive of British universities to attract highly talented people from abroad and whether there should be more encouragement to graduates to apply for work visas upon graduation. Seema. Yeah, and I, th I think the first big step towards that has already been taken with the introduction of the graduate route um, last year. Um, and we, um, I say the introduction, it's almost like a reintroduction because um, many years ago we had something called the Tier 1 Post-Study Work Visa, which was quite similar to the graduate route. 
So I think I think the ability for individuals to kind of remain in the UK economy and look for work at their own time and pace um, is something that will make the UK much more attractive um, when universities are looking at attracting students um, to the UK. The flexibility in the system as well to switch into other categories, I think, is all good news. Um, it's probably early days to start looking at numbers. And of course, we know that um, universities have similarly been hit by the pandemic. So I think looking at how effective that, that route is going to be is, uh, is going to take a bit of time. But again, I come back to the narrative. So having these routes is great, but in order to get people into universities, into employment in the UK, um, you have to have a positive narrative around how, what the UK is doing to attract talent. And we're, we're starting to see some of that. We saw a, a new initiative announced in the, in the autumn budget um, to ensure that um, outside of the UK that message is being and that message is, is being spread. So I think I think we will start to see some improvements from the graduate route, from the flexibilities, and then from some of the, the new initiatives to enhance the UK's attractiveness overseas. Next question from Nicholas Wood. It's a, on a slight tangent, but he's picked up on a point that was particularly highlighted in a recent FT article about the large number of older people who seem to have withdrawn from the labour market during the pandemic. Um, Giles, I know you've been looking a little bit at this. What are your thoughts on this? And I'll, then I'll come to the rest of the panel about how might this impact on the UK's need for migrant labour as well? Giles. Uh, it's a really interesting point because it's also one of the big pushes of that large increase in labour supply under the coalition where we abolished the default retirement age. And, um, and also at the same time, rather more brutally, because incomes in the whole economy fell, the, the incentive to work was much, much higher. So the whole supply of labour came out and it affected right across the board, but um, I believe older workers too. Um, my, my cowardly answer would be is it's extremely unwise to judge too early because there's both, there's all sorts of rather unique circumstances right now. One of them is that it's literally become more dangerous to work um, because of COVID, particularly for older people. And that we should hope is a temporary fact and might well be um, gone by the spring, as we keep seem to be saying over COVID. But by then, hopefully everyone will be boosted. People will be outdoors more. The, the treatments will be better. And once that factors away, you might see them recover. The other really interesting temporary fact that I don't think has been discussed enough is the, the wealth effect that people have done really well because of COVID support, because of the huge boom in asset prices going on. A lot of people have just simply benefited and can afford to have a, another look at a different kind of lifestyle. And that plus the prompt, the huge prompt of working from home suddenly for the first time, you just see so many different anecdotes that people say, oh, hold it well, I should try, try and think about something different. Again, we really don't know whether that might be temporary or not. And I, but I, my suspicion is that normal economics will reassert itself. There's going to be some difficult times fiscally for the UK in the years ahead. And um, and that group will gradually return. I don't, but it might be quite a while, and it might therefore have some very important short-term effects. Madeline, is this something that you on the Migration Advisory Committee have been thinking about as a factor that might affect the outlook for the need for migrant labour? Um, yeah, I mean, I should also add, I'm here in a um, personal capacity for the observatory and not speaking on behalf of the committee. But um, one thing I will say, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, obviously all of the points that Giles made very important about, you know, how long will this will this last? Um, I think in, in terms of thinking about, well, what does this mean for the need for migrant workers? I would generally um, 
advise caution in taking an overly deterministic view about how migration should respond to sort of numbers of people um, coming in and out of the workforce um, because there isn't a fixed need for, for labour. Obviously, you do have, there are impacts. Um, if you have a lot of people um, retiring in specific occupations, for example, that may increase demand. Um, but I think when you think about the impacts of migration, it's usually more important um, to look at things like how, um, you know, what is the sort of wages and productivity of people coming in, what contributions are they making to public finances, what, you know, are there spillover effects that will benefit other parts of the economy, thinking kind of, uh, you know, more of the specific jobs that, that they're doing rather than trying to sort of worry too much about whether we have the right overall number of, of migrants, because I think most of the attempts to work out what the overall number is, that's not very successful, basically. And next question from Ramsey Ross, um, and I think this goes back a, a bit to the discussion we were just having before about the need for different immigration systems in the different parts of the UK. Um, Ramsey asks, does the cost of housing militate against significant regional labour mobility? Um, Paul Seymour, perhaps I can put this one to you, is that something that businesses that you work with come across as an issue that you can't move workers from one part of the country to another because of the differences in housing costs and the impact of that on disposable incomes? Well, I mean, our, our members wouldn't come to us and say, oh, you know, it's housing costs that's the problem. But this idea that, you know, uh, we've got a high, a high vacancy rate and suddenly we've got lots of people who need jobs and it's as simple as that. Obviously that isn't the case and it does very much come down to different regions and people people are sort of anchored in a particular region. Maybe their child goes to school there, they bought a house there. It's not as simple as to say, all right, well I've got that particular skill set so I'm going to uproot and move to a different bit of the country. And I think that that is why, um, you know, there's going to be quite a long period of adjustment now as, as you know, we've had all the people who've maybe hung on to their roles or been furloughed during the pandemic. They've now perhaps decided to make that move. And this adjustment period is going to take quite a while. That's not to say, again, that the answer is necessarily needs to come from the immigration system. It's one of it's one of the, I suppose, options for providing some sort of temporary relief as that adjustment takes place. Seema. Um, not much to add to that, really. I, I agree with Paul. I, I don't think it's the number one uh, issue that, that is brought to the table when, when people are considering this. But of course, uh, businesses who are using the system at high volume, many of them will be using, um, will be providing housing allowances, etc., particularly for individuals who are transferring from, from overseas. So, yeah, I, I think it's one of those problems in the ecosystem, um, but maybe not one of the ones that, that's impacting uh, entrance to, to that system. Madeline, I'll put a very quick, um, very factual question to you. For, it's coming from Katie, who asks, is there a breakdown available of what percentage of jobs migrant workers occupy within different skill knowledge levels? Uh, yes, there is. And in fact, you can go to the Migration Observatory website um, and there's a briefing about uh, called Migrants in the Labour Market, in the UK Labour Market, and it has all of the data on the jobs that migrant workers are doing. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I knew you'd be able to help us out with that one. Um, so I think this will probably be, have to be our final question. So we're coming up towards the end of time. But Samuel asks, will we ever know if markets correct themselves um, with the constraints on labour supply and through migration? Um, essentially, his, his contention is, will governments not just always kind of panic and then, 
ease the immigration controls when things start to go a bit wrong? So will we ever know if the market self-corrects? Um, Giles, I'll come to you first. I, I would say that it takes a very long time. And, and I mean, the, the books that I keep by my, my, the side of the desk to try and understand what it was like when we last did it, I've got titles like this attractive looking number here, Managing the British Economy in the 1960s, where you can find things like unemployment hitting 0.6% in the West Midlands, and all the concern being how can we find the workers to bring people in. We had a long periods of relative labour shortage in this country, and um, it took a long time for us to realise that it didn't turn us into that enlightened Scandinavian style, high investment, high training. Now, maybe things are different. I mean, it's a very different kind of world there, manufacturing and so forth being much stronger. But it normally takes a very, very long time and a massive political argument to change that sort of thing. So and even then it will be disputed. Some people will still think of that as a golden age, whereas at the time they thought they were totally declining all the time. So I think it will be difficult. Would anyone else like to come in on this one? Madeline? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess part of that question is sort of, you know, will the government resist the calls for more immigration and therefore we would never find out because uh, immigration policy will become liberal again? I think so far, I mean, you know, I, I don't have the crystal ball on this, but if you look at the measures so far, um, for example, on HGV drivers or um, uh, pork butchers and poultry workers, uh, where additional visas were introduced, these are very narrow measures. Um, you know, they're very short term. Um, they were, you know, introduced with such a short window for applying, um, you know, we don't know what the take up is is going to be. So I would I would say that so far the government sort of basically is sticking to its original plan, even though there have been this, sort of, I would say, probably quite marginal tweaks. In terms of whether we will ever know kind of statistically what the impacts um, were, assuming that policy goes ahead on its, its current course, um, uh, it's actually often especially in a time of COVID when all of the data is messed up, it's actually um, often really difficult to get a solid measure of um, of what the impacts of immigration policies were. Um, so my suspicion is that we'll we'll get some statistical analysis and maybe it'll tell us something, but we won't have the, the clear picture that we that we would like to see in terms of what the impacts of this have been. And Paul and Seema, do your members and your clients feel they have a clear enough steer from government of the long term trajectory of immigration policy that they can adjust their behaviour to? Well, I mean, as I said at the start, small businesses are not rushing in droves to use the immigration system. The vast, vast majority don't use it because it's it's too costly, too complex. And it's, you know, they would rather uh, recruit people locally, train them up themselves if, if, if they can. So I don't think that these short term visas that come in have somehow made uh, business eyes light up and think great immigration is going to solve everything we don't need to worry it's ab that is absolutely not the case i think I'd, i would i would just add that we we said at the outset that one of the key challenges is is cost in the system um, and so i think all eyes are now going to be on the spring 2022 changes and the new categories that are being introduced and, and looking at how far they will go to alleviate some of those cost challenges and how the uh, sponsor simplifications will make it easier for smaller businesses as well to engage with the system. Thank you all Thank very, you much. very much. We are now out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap up there. But I've certainly found this a really interesting discussion about how things are working at the moment and a bit of a look ahead to what we may and probably will never know about how the new system is operating, what impact it will have on the UK economy. Thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you very much to my panellists, Paul, Madeline, Giles and Seema. And please do join us again for the next of our IFG events.
Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.